and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your host, Taylor Scollin. My co-host, Sarah Bartnika, is off this week. So today, we're talking about planning bylaws in Toronto. And before you turn this off, hear me out. Because I did hesitate to do this episode thinking it was a little bit Toronto-centric, but I think it's something that's actually important for people across the country because Toronto has been one of the two epicenters of our national housing crisis, the other being Vancouver, of course. And for a long time, people priced out of these cities have just been driving until they can afford something. And that prices people in those communities outside of the cities out and they start going to more affordable communities and so on and so on. And the whole thing waterfalls because there's not enough housing in the cities. But Toronto's trying something new. For a long time, it was basically illegal to build anything in Toronto bigger than a single family home in most parts of the city. And just last month, the city changed that. And they made it legal to build up to four units in single buildings across the city. And this has been pitched as something that could help alleviate the housing shortage in Toronto and bring down prices, not just here, but across the province as well. Maybe a model for other cities in the country who are struggling with these issues. So today on the show, we have someone who's seen the impact of these changes firsthand and can walk us through what it means for the economics of development and the housing market right now. Chris Spoke is a Toronto-based real estate investor and developer and a principal at Spoke Developments. Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so why don't we just start with sort of a high-level look at what's actually changed with these new multiplex rules. What can you do now that you couldn't do before? Yeah, so I'll I'll tell you the most recent thing that's changed. Um, But the the broader context is that the new multiplex change changes are part of a a broader program called EHON um, that the city planning department is undertaking. So EHON is an acronym that starts for exploring housing options in neighborhoods. And the general idea and mandate um, is to explore ways in which the city could permit more infill development, more gentle intensification of existing neighborhoods. So the program started with the legalization of laneway suites. Um, a kind of quick follow on to that was the legalization of garden suites, which is basically like a granny flat, like a, a structure in your backyard when you don't have a lane. And then the most recent thing is this multiplex change, um, which, you know, these are all progressively getting more ambitious. Um, so the multiplex one has been the most interesting so far. So as the city defines it, a multiplex is a building with two or three or four units. So a duplex, a triplex, um, or a fourplex. Um, there are many residential zones in the city that don't allow for these types of housing. So the largest residential zone is the RD zone, residential detached. Um, then you have another, I think this, well, I don't think it's the second largest, but the, but the next kind of most restrictive zone is the RS zone, where you can build detached and semi-detached housing. And there are, I think, six of these residential zones all together, and they all form um, what's called the neighborhoods land use designation. And I'm kind of like speaking across two different documents. So the zones are defined in the zoning bylaw, and then the official plan defines these broader land use designations. What the multiplex stuff did was the first thing it did was just made it so that a duplex, triplex, or fourplex is permitted to be built in any of the residential zones across the neighborhoods land use designation. So the first thing is like, now these things are legal. Great. Um, 
But there are other ways in which the zoning bylaw makes it hard to build multiplexes. Um, so one example is every property on every street throughout the city has a maximum height um, that's been imposed on it. Um, that height could be 4.5 meters. It could be six meters. It could be nine meters and so on. And what the multiplex changes that the city recently passed did was to ensure that in any scenario where the maximum height is less than nine meters, it gets bumped up to nine meters for the purpose of multiplex construction. And you could think of nine meters as like a three-story structure with like three meters per, per floor. Um, so that's the second big thing. The zoning bylaw also had this very weird and um, like obviously nonsensical restriction where you could build a detached house to a deeper maximum depth than a multiplex. Um, so I think it was that a detached house can be built to 17 meters of depth, whereas a multiplex could only be built to 15 meters of depth. This multiplex change that the city passed extending that extended that to 19 meters. So just to recap, you can now build duplex, triplex, and fourplexes anywhere in the city. You can build them to a minimum of nine meters of height to a maximum of 19 meters of depth. And then kind of the last and I think maybe most important thing um, that these changes made was there's an additional restriction through the zoning bylaw that is often placed on this form of construction, and that's called the FSI constraint. So FSI stands for floor space index. Um, other jurisdictions call this the FAR, floor area ratio. And it's basically you calculate your FSI or the, or the FSI imposes a, a limit on the gross floor area, the interior space you're allowed to build as a percentage or as a ratio of the lot area. So again, for example, if you have a lot in, in the city of Toronto, that's 20 by 100 feet, which is not too atypical. That's 2000 square feet of lot area. If the zoning bylaw says that you have an FSI of 0.6, which is not at all uncommon, it means that your, your interior space cannot be more than 1,200 square feet, right? 60% of that lot area. Um, I think I have that right. I, I think, I, think I, did, I did the public math, right? So it's not enough to legalize this housing type and to increase the maximum height and the maximum depth to make it feasible from a form perspective. If you don't also kind of allow for more density than what, than what the FSI might permit, it, it still won't get built. So what the city did for this multiplex change is they removed FSI as a constraint altogether for these multiplex buildings. So the idea is that if we're already defining the maximum height, the depth, the zoning bylaw also has like minimum setbacks to the front, to the rear, to the side. You're already defining through the zoning bylaw what the box can look like, and you don't need to layer on top of that this further limit to, uh, to indoor uh, living space. So... When we talk about multiplexes, are we just talking about buildings with four units, or does it also include triplexes and duplexes? The duplex, triplex, and fourplex. So when you when okay. you use the word multiplex, I think some people might assume that it can mean even more units than that. But for the purpose yeah. of this law change, it's two, three, or four units. Okay. So from a developer's perspective, how does this change the economics of doing a project like that? Was it just that it was basically impossible to do this before because of the rules or was it uneconomical? Like walk me through the rationale and how these things sort of uh, are approached by developers who do want to do this sort of uh, construction. Yeah, I think, I mean, the first consideration is not an economic one. It's just li literally, is this legal? Am I right. legally allowed to build a fourplex on this lot in this neighborhood? And until this law change, 
for the vast, 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 vast majority of the city, the answer to that was no. The largest residential zone, again, is RD. And if you're not building a detached house, um, you're not building, you're, you're not building anything. Um, so the first thing it did was just make it legal. Then there's, there's this kind of secondary consideration of whether or not it's been made more economic. And at the margin, it has. Um, when you consider buying a property, which most likely will have a detached house on it, because again, that's the most prevalent built form in the city. And then you go through the process of costing out what it would take to renovate or to tear down and redevelop at four units, let's say. Um, the larger those four units can be, the better, because you're able to realize more revenue from those units to justify the expense. Um, there's there's like this big kind of secondary question that we might get into as to whether this is enough to, to move the needle. Um, but more height, more depth, and no FSI constraint certainly kind of pushes in the right direction. And what are the costs like now to, like, you know, ballpark, build something like a four-unit multiplex in the city of Toronto right now? Like, once you have, you know, the value of the land, the construction costs, all these things, development charges, does it make sense financially to actually build these things? Yeah, so a few, few different costs in there. So the first thing I'll say is straight construction, and I'm, I'm looking at this kind of all the time, so... This is a pretty, I think, recent understanding of costs. Um, there was, there is a, a big variance, but you could build a fourplex for something like three twenty-five to four fifty. That's a per per square foot. That is. Um, so that's where I would, I would place the range. And of course, then like you got to think through like how big of a, of a structure are we talking, and then, and then apply that that number. Some of that variance it comes from uh, whether or not you will hire a general contractor to build it for you who will layer kind of the cost of construction with their own fee or whether you'll self-perform as a general contractor and not at a, a feature cost. But I would say 325 to 450 is kind of like a pretty, a pretty accurate range. Is there That's just, just the cost to build. Correct. Okay. Um, so then you, you mentioned development charges, which is, which is worth mentioning, but there's this other kind of po positive policy change that the city did outside of this Ehan framework, but within the same spirit of it, that's, that's worth mentioning. So that's the city recently, um, I think this was earlier this year, maybe like January of this year, um, increases development charges. And for those uh, of your listeners that don't know, a development charge is a fee that is applied on a per unit basis for new construction. And the idea, the rationale is that as you introduce new units and therefore new residents to a neighborhood, the city needs to tax that to pay for the service upgrades um, that are necessary to serve these, these new residents. So, so that's the idea. And there's, there's obviously some like nitpicking you could have with that. Um, the, the development charges are pretty high. They could, they could range from like $25,000 to $45,000, depending on, on the unit size per unit. So that's, that's a major cost um, on your pro forma. When the city up, last updated its development charges by law, it also introduced an exemption so that if you're building four or fewer units in a building with four or fewer units, you don't have to pay development charges on any of those units. So if you're building a fourplex, they are fully exempt from development charges. They're also exempt from parkland cash and loo payments, which are, which are another charge that the city applies to new construction. Um, so that's definitely been a, a big help. So you have your construction costs as one major cost category. You have your development charges, which now no longer apply at least to this scale of housing. You have your soft costs, your design costs, which include things like architectural drawings, structural drawings, your mechanical and engineer, your mechanical and um, electrical drawings, um, which are at this scale pretty modest. Um, and then the biggest cost beyond that, of course, is the land itself. 
and once you put all that together, are you seeing projects that are you know are being built at market you know for market rates, buying the land at market rates, hiring the construction workers, buying the materials at market rates? Are you seeing those uh, pencil as like profitable projects right now, or what's how are people viewing these things in development? Yeah, so I'm not. Uh, so the, the challenge is that as this has all been happening housing prices have been rising rapidly in Toronto, despite rate hikes and that sort of thing. Like the, the cost of a detached house, which again is the most common house that you might try to buy to redevelop into a fourplex. They've just been through the COVID period rising rapidly. We're still like easily 30%, even in kind of like neighborhoods that haven't been, um, that haven't seen the most aggressive price increases. We're 30, easily 30% above where they were pre COVID. So the challenge you have as a developer, if you want to build this kind of missing middle multiplex housing is you need to outbid a family that really wants a detached house for that house. And the way I put it is the family has the lowest possible cost of capital because it's not an economic calculation that they're making. They're just kind of deciding how much do they love this house and maybe they, they make a lot of money in finance or tech or something like that. And they, and they'll, and they'll pay a number that does not make sense from a purely economic, um, standpoint. So I, I think I think that these these still don't pencil. If you want to build fourplexes, if you want to take advantage of this law change, it's kind of one of two scenarios that will be most common. The first is you already own the home. So you're an existing homeowner. Maybe your kids have moved out and gone to university um, or whatever your life situation might be. And, and you have the flexibility to renovate your house into a four, fourplex. Take one of those units and rent the other three out for income. I can see that happening, though not at the same scale as if this was, you know, something that could be turned into a repeatable business model. And then the second, frankly, is finding um, lots that you can buy below market. So this is something that I've tried to do, which is to send letters to homeowners and kind of tell them a story uh, and get them to sell you their property for less than it's worth. But as you can imagine, it's like a very hard thing to do. Yeah, no, I can't imagine that. So I, I'm kind of interested in that first scenario because one thing that I know that you have some experience with and that people will often talk about is just the time it takes to go through the process of getting approvals to build new things, to tear down things, all these you know hoops that you have to jump through uh, to get the permits to actually do those those sorts of builds. So I'm curious, you know, let's say you do already own a single family detached home and you decide, Hey, I want to turn this into a multiplex. What is the actual development process like for that now? Like how long are you going to be spending dealing with city hall and building inspectors and so on to get something like that done? Yeah. So, um, this is what that would look like. So the first thing you would do is you would talk to an architect to lay out what your new multiplex might look like. And again, this might be a major renovation to your existing house, the existing structure, or kind of like a ground up redevelopment where you're knocking it down and, and doing a full purpose built multiplex building. You would then take those drawings, you would submit it to the city um, for a process that's known as a zoning review. It's also called a preliminary plan review. And this is where the city tells you all the ways in which it might not perfectly comply with existing zoning. So for example, we talked about maximum height now being nine meters. Maybe you need 9.3 for some for some reason. Um, there are fewer variances that will likely be required now than before because the most standard variances that 
multiplex developers would go for are things like FSI. And as I mentioned, that's no longer on the table. Height is better than it was. Depth is better than it was. Parking used to be a big thing where the zoning bylaw used to require one parking spot per unit. But as of a year ago, that's gone. But let's say you, you have this one variance on, on height. Um, you then have to go to the Committee of Adjustments, uh, which is a committee with uh, five members who receive a list of these variances. So they, they get this zoning review that was performed by the city. And then your rationale for why a variance should be granted for you to get an exception, essentially, to these, to these zoning rules. The co- committee of, of, of uh, adjustments votes on that. If you're successful, all variances are approved. It used to be, as of four months ago, that anybody who opposed that decision could appeal it. So your neighbor who didn't want you to have the 0.3 meters above the maximum permitted height could appeal that. Um, the province, around the same time the city was un- undergoing this exploring housing option neighborhood stuff, remove the ability for a third-party review of a, a committee of adjustment decision. So I went through this process, sadly, two months before that change happened, where I did have a decision that was appealed by a neighbor, and I had to essentially pay them off to drop it. But that's no longer the case. So all, all in, you're probably, uh, you're probably now like three months into this process. Once you get that successful decision from the committee, um, you then complete your drawings. Typically, the drawings that you'll submit to the committee are at a lesser degree of detail or completion than what you need to submit to the building department for permits. So now you would complete your drawings now that you know your variances will be granted and you submit it to the buildings department to review, to ask you questions and to issue your permits. And I would say that's another three months. So we're, we're probably looking at a start to finish process just to receive your permits of six months. And I would say this is much, much better than what it would have been before these changes that I just mentioned. And are there costs associated with all of those steps? Like, I assume you probably need to hire people to help navigate this. Like, I'm just trying to think of, you know, these sort of older people who have these homes and their kids have moved out. And the idea of them going through this complicated regulatory process to get all these approvals seems kind of far-fetched to me. Yeah, I think so. I think I think the biggest challenge more than the cost is just the know-how and, and even kind yeah. of like, who do you start? talking to. Um, Because often like the reason why I think this model works for existing homeowners is because they've generated so much equity lift in their properties through property values going up that you can pull out a HELOC and like pay for all of this, including your construction and and still be ahead. Um, So I think the challenge is really finding an architect and a municipal planner and in the event that you need one, but for this scale, you probably don't municipal lawyer that know this process well. And that's not obvious. I think there's good business to be built around kind of knocking on doors as a general contractor or as a design build consultant and just telling them why it's a good idea and doing it for them as a vendor, as opposed to as a developer. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, I think there's a little bit of complexity again, much less than there used to be because you don't need to strategize how to navigate a committee of adjustment appeal, for example, because now you can't appeal that anymore. The costs are not too much because at this stage, it's your design costs, which are pretty minimal because we're talking about pretty small structures. The city of Toronto has a relatively small number of different lot configurations that you can imagine for this sort of construction. So there is something approaching a library of off-the-shelf drawings you could buy for this sort of thing. Like not exactly, but we're getting we're getting close to it. Um, and then again, because you're not paying any development charges or parkland cash and loop payments, that doesn't come into effect. So it's really the land. And then if we had to put a number on it, I think you could get away with ten to 25000 all the way through to permits. 
Okay. So, I mean, you've already explained why from a developer's perspective, these maybe don't make the most sense. Um, it sounds like it makes a little bit more sense just from a individual sort of entrepreneur's perspective who wants to turn a house that they own into a multiplex, but still some complications there. So I guess the question that leads to is how do you think that this is going to impact actual new construction? Like this has been pitched as a way to get more supply into the market. Does that seem realistic to you? At the margin, yes. It's, it's always like, what, what volume are we talking about? And I, th- I think the problem with this stuff, and it was the same thing with laneway suites and garden suites before it, is the political will only kind of reaches the threshold needed to get this done when the problem has gotten much worse than like this. The, like it's gotten to the point where this is no longer a sufficiently good solution. Mm. So if we, if we legalize this form of fourplex, um, four years ago, I think we could have seen a lot built because I do think that developers with these new permissions could outbid families on most lots that go up for sale. But that's frankly no longer the case. And and like that's an empirical question, but I've, I've looked at literally hundreds of these and they just don't pencil almost ever. Um, so I don't expect a ton of volume. I, I would be surprised if we're getting a thousand new units, let's call it within the 12 months. There's this potential appeal period to this law that was just changed. But let's say once that appeal period is gone, is passed, and this is now actually in effect, within the 12 months following that day, I would be surprised if we saw a thousand, a thousand of these units. And, and for context, the city of Toronto, we, we typically see about 15,000 units built per year, mostly in high rise and, and mid rise built form. Um, I would be very surprised and pleasantly surprised if we thought, if we saw a thousand multiplex units delivered over the 12 months following this law change. Wow. Okay. That's kind of an interesting dynamic I hadn't considered before. Like as the prices get worse because the supply is insufficient, it actually becomes more difficult for developers to build. Like it becomes more expensive yeah. and it becomes harder to fix the the problem. So in I guess is there a tipping point where, you know, if we legalized not four units but five units or six units that it does then become economical for developers to start doing this sort of low-rise, mid-rise construction. Uh, where would that be? Yeah, so, so it's hard to say. I think it's more kind of it's more like if there are a fixed number of detached houses that get listed for sale every year, what do multi-unit permissions need to be to grow the share of those that go into redevelopment? Um, and there's no like great way to run that experiment without without actually running it. My, my sense is that if you're shy of eight units, you're probably not outbidding a family for a detached house in the city. And there's like a further complication to that. Um, development charges, I mentioned this exemption on development charges is a major cost savings for the developers. But the way the city designed the policy was not that it's your first four units in any building that get exempted from development charges. It's the first four units in a building with four units. So if I build an Aplex, if I build a fiveplex, I have to pay development charges on all new units. If I pay, if I build a fourplex on, on none. So it's not kind of like there's this concept in, in, um, in public policy design of a benefits cliff where you don't want to introduce a benefits cliff or it incentivizes kind of like the opposite of, of what you're trying to accomplish. So there are scenarios where you might have a property where you were contemplating to build five or six units and you might cut that back down to four just to take advantage of this wow. development charge exemption. 
So you, you need to overcome that benefits clip on top of just like the high price of land to get to a point where redevelopment makes sense. I would say certainly not anything lower than eight units. Do you know why they designed it that way? Was that intentional or a mistake? Or is this sort of a, the thing, one of these situations where they're trying to make it appear that they're making progress on this, but actually not rocking the boat in any meaningful way? And so I know a bit about this because I, I raised a fuss and, and I got some uh, DMs from from some insiders. So the, the, the amendment to the development charges bylaw that was being passed was put forth by Anna Bailau, who's kind of generally seen as having been, when she was on council, a pro-housing voice. And I think the intent was good. It was to make this form of housing more economic to build. And then I think what happened then is a combination of staffers who just don't understand proper policy design or kind of like how economic incentives affect the outcomes that you're that you're trying to achieve. That's some part of it. And and I, I've talked to these people. And the other part of it was apparently very strong pushback from corporate finance, who was very worried about lost revenue from exempting these units from being units that you could charge development charges to. And there's two crazy things about that. The first crazy thing is that corporate finance has that much of a say on policy design. It seems like a little bit like the, the, the tail wagging the dog. But the other thing is, these are units that aren't get, getting built anyway, right? Like a detached house that could potentially be a fourplex doesn't generate any development charge revenue unless it does, in fact, get redeveloped as a fourplex or a fiveplex or a sixplex. So they're counting revenue that wasn't being collected anyway and in the process kind of forced on Council Bylaw staff, who, who I think probably could have fought a little harder to, have, to, to introduce this policy in a way that has a major benefit cliff and disincentivize going, going beyond four units. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, so while I have you here, I want to broaden this a little bit more to just like general development, uh, what the market is looking like in Toronto right now. So, I mean, interest rates have gone up quite a bit. How have mm -hmm. you seen that affecting development more broadly? Like, are people pulling back on new construction? What's, what's happening right now? Yeah, they, they, they definitely are. Um, so this impacts both the condo market and the rental market for similar reasons, but like a different mechanism. So if you're building rental, so this, this multiplex that I mentioned that I'm working on, which had to go through the committee of adjustment, get appealed and, and all of that, uh, we now have our building permits, but we're not starting construction. We, we did some of our demos and of our, some of our underpinning, but we're basically pressing pause. And the reason for that is, we bought the land pre-rate hikes. We have a pretty good rate on our mortgage for the land, and it's only for the value of the land. If we take on a major construction loan, which for us would be somewhere between one and a half to two million dollars, um, that's that's then cost that we're carrying at a construction loan rate, which is typically higher than what's called a takeout financing rate, like the mortgage you get after the thing is built, your long-term mortgage, and. You've, you buy it out at a takeout financing rate that for us right now would be too high. We'd be underwater on this project. So we're basically pressing pause on incurring this additional $1.5 to $2 million in cost because we don't have any confidence that a year later when construction is completed and we get our takeout financing that it'll be at a rate that makes sense to us. So, so we're, we're pressing pause and we're seeing this with many of our friends and, and people at all different scales, including high-rise rental developments, the same logic, just at a, just bigger numbers. 
And then, and then with condo sales, it's kind of like, do you want to be launching a sales center and launching condo sales into this market where people have to get pre-qualified for financing at these higher rates? And, and there've been like some, some projects that have done okay, but, but most that I've seen have been, um, underwhelming, if not a complete disaster from, from the developer standpoint. So is that why we hear these stories about developers kind of sitting on land and not doing much? with it? Are they in the same situation that you are basically? Yeah, I think, I think very, like recently since these rate hikes, that has, that has become true. I think we've heard those sort of stories before this. And I think that was kind of like more mythology than, than something happening at scale. There was always an incentive to actually move as quickly as possible, but that is now becoming true. Yeah. Especially if you have any suspicion that we might start in the near future seeing rate cuts, then it does make sense to try to drag it out a little bit. Another another way in which we're seeing this is there, there used to be developers who wanted to buy sites that were already zoned and just take it through construction and complete it. Um, there's much less of an appetite for that. You would much rather buy an unzoned site and take the next two to three years zoning it just to wait out You know what hopefully will eventually become rate cuts. Um, so yeah, that's, that's definitely a, a big problem. Okay. And then on construction and labor costs, uh, are you seeing those trending down at all? Like, is, is that getting any better or what's the status on that? Yeah. You hear different stories at, at different scales. So one thing that's, um, one, one thing that I like about multiplex and missing middle kind of like lower scale, smaller scale development is you're not dealing with the same kind of unionized trades that you hear a lot about for mid-rise and high-rise construction. And not just because of the union component, but we're talking about very specialized skills that are just scarce in the economy. So people who know how to form concretes for concrete structure buildings, that's just kind of like a dying trade where everybody's retiring out of the business over the next 10 years. Steel steel frame, we, we don't basically do at all in Toronto. Um, whereas when you're building a four a three-story four-unit building, you're dealing with kind of like general contractor type people, general labor to a large extent. This is wood frame, so cheaper materials, cheaper labor, and I think a more dynamic labor pool. Um, so you haven't seen the same cost escalation for missing middle housing types as you had for mid-rise and high-rise. On the mid-rise and high-rise front, I think that was, to some extent, the hope that there would be these negative pressures from a development perspective, like higher rates um, and, and kind of more, more onus regulations in a lot of ways. But that, that might be counterbalanced by rising rents and lower costs of construction. I think the cost of construction, the, the, the rate of increase has definitely slowed. I haven't seen any obvious signs that things have reversed. And there's actually been some major studies just to kind of disabuse developers of any, um, any unreasonable hope that there are like three periods over the last hundred years where construction costs have come down. It's just not something that generally happens. Construction costs typically just go up and it's just a matter of whether they go up slowly or, or quickly. Hmm. A lot of the, I mean, basically all of the news and trends that we read about and talk about are are negative when it comes to housing. And there seems to be very little indication that, you know, any of the factors that would lead to more housing being built or housing getting cheaper, like none of that seems to be happening. Even this multiplex stuff, I think you've done a good job of describing why that's really only going to move things at the margins. Are there any trends or patterns that you know would ease these cost pressures or affordability issues that you see happening right now? Yeah, I think I think maybe two. The first is that this multiplex stuff is, in my view, too little, too late. 
but it is still a prog, uh, a, a, a positive step. So it is still progress. Um, and it's hard to overstate how unthinkable it would have been to make even this modest change five years ago. The attitude in council and among the city's residents, frankly, was that there should be no intensification at all in neighborhoods. The language in the official plan is that the stability of neighborhoods is paramount. Uh, the physical character must be maintained at all costs. That was kind of like the prevailing notion. And there was even the the comparable law changes to the neighborhoods landings designation back then were to entrench that. So there was this exemption, for example, where if you had a neighborhood full of detached houses, the language in the official plan is to maintain or to respect and reinforce the existing physical char character of the neighborhood. There was this loophole where if you bought a church or a school that was already out of pattern, out of character, you might be able to redevelop that into townhouses or something like that. And about five years ago, there was a law change that was called OPA 320, Official Plan Amendment 320, that killed that loophole. So even if you buy a church or, or a school, it still has to be a bunch of detached houses to match the prevailing physical character. So to go from that to now, a law that was being passed um, in a system that now, I guess, in theory, supports strong mayor powers, but still with the majority of council voting in favor to legalize four-unit multiplexes citywide, that is, a, that is a pretty radical shift. So it's too little too late, yet still pretty radical, which just goes to show you how bad the status quo was. So if that trend accelerates and we go from, you know, laneway suites two years ago to garden suites one year ago to four unit multiplexes this year to maybe like 12 unit walk up apartments next year, we could get to a point where it starts tipping into, okay, like redevelopment territory. Now let's, let's kind of scale up and get this done. Um, so we'll see. We have a mayoral election in Toronto ongoing right now, and, and we'll see who, who the mayor will be and what their appetite will be for this sort of change. So I think that's one positive trend. I, I wouldn't like bet any real money on it, but but I like Toronto, so I, I'm hoping that things go the right way. And then the second would be that's on the supply front. And the second would be on the demand front, right? Maybe we are finally reaching this point where remote work really is here to stay, and people can really work from you know work work for cities or for companies in the city, but not live in the city. Um, I might be even less optimistic about that than than the first uh, trend, but you know, if I had to find some reason for hope, that might be part of it. Right. So these are both kind of like exogenous trends to development, uh, but there's nothing happening in the development sector, like new technology. Like I don't know, you hear about like no. prefabricated homes and stuff like that. You don't think there's anything that's happening there that we wouldn't have heard of that might make a difference. No, no, no. I mean, the, the problem with like, a lot of these things that you hear a lot about, like um, prefabricated modular homes, there's there's a there's a really good post on a on a subset called Construction Physics about this. It's basically a transportation problem. Is you need the cost savings of pre-building houses in a factory out of the city to be so great that they more than make up for the cost of tr then transporting transporting that home to the site, and that's not currently the case. Um, and it's not currently the case for a few reasons, but one of those reasons is those factories can't really operate at scale because every site has its own kind of unique um, features that would that would kind of tweak the design one way or the other. Every city has different zoning rules. Every province has different building codes. So there's not enough standardization where you could see economies of scale that are again sufficient to overcome the transportation cost problem. So I don't I don't see any. I, I think a lot of that is kind of like. To the extent that you see that promoted, it's like things that people write to get grants. It's not something that any real builder is, is counting on. Um, no, it's, it, it, it is these exogenous changes that are required, but like 
you know, from a technical perspective, like much, much easier for council to write on a piece of paper that you can now build 12 units than it is to like innovate sure. this centuries old, millennia old. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Okay. Well, Chris, that was great. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll, we'll have to follow up in like a year to see if your prediction of a thousand or fewer multiplexes comes true or not. But appreciate you sharing your knowledge about this with us. Yeah, not a problem. Happy to do it. Okay, well, that's our episode for this week. Thanks to Chris for joining us. Thanks to you for listening. If you want to find more episodes of the podcast, you can search for Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe to our daily business newsletter as well. You can find that at www.readthepeak.com. We'll see you next week.